G'day and welcome to the Hidden White Podcast. This is episode 662, my conversation with Miles Neal, all about the gradual awakening. Enjoy. Hey, what up, guys? Welcome to the Hidden White Podcast. I'm excited. Today, I've got a fantastic interview, as always. Once a week, I bring out this long-form interview where I get to really talk with someone about their passions, about their work, about their fields of expertise. And today, I'm presenting Miles Neal. So he's just launched a new book called Gradual Awakening, The Tibetan Buddhist Path of Becoming Fully Human. So it's not a conversation about mindfulness. We certainly do go into mindfulness and meditation and the trendiness of all that. But we go deeper, it's next level stuff. So if you've been you know, practicing meditation in your own life and pursuing that mindfulness sort of path, Miles takes it to the next level. And I guess that's what his book is there to encourage us to do. Not only looking at mindfulness, but looking at the other two virtues as well, um, wisdom and virtue, the other th- two elements of you know that, that, that spiritual that path in life. We certainly talk about that and we talk about how the pendulum has swung from this, this very much spiritual based reality that humans were living to this, this secular sort of way of life and, and how we've gone too far one way and then too far the other. And now it's, you know, we're talking about trying to find a balance, guys. It's a really cool conversation. We talk about the hero's journey, the, the global crisis that we're facing at the moment. And then we wrap it all up beautifully with some practices that you can take away and hopefully use in your own life. Guys, I'd highly recommend you pick up a copy of the book and uh, let us know what you think of this conversation. Cheers. G'day, Miles, and welcome to the Hidden White Podcast. How are you today? Oh, great. Thanks so much for having me, Lee. What, a, what, a, what an honor. It's a pleasure for you to join me, mate, and I'm looking forward to exploring the, the, the topics of your book, Gradual Awakening. You've just uh, released, I believe, this month. Is that correct? Yeah. Actually, just last week was the uh, launch at Tibet House in New York City, and I just came back from Toronto, and the book was uh, well-received so far, so I'm very, very honored, and uh, I'm so looking forward to sharing it with a, with a wide audience. That's awesome. Yeah, looking forward to exploring it and certainly want to encourage the listeners out there today um, if it's a topic of interest to go out there and pick up a copy as well. So I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Uh, but Gradual Awakening, um, you know, this, it's it's quite a, a popular topic, point of conversation these days, a lot of trend and hype around mindfulness, meditation, etc. Um, and certainly a lot of people online um, in that space, you know, promoting it, um, maybe even selling it. Um, and perhaps it's it's more hype than is actually beneficial. I think it's always beneficial, um, but you just have to be careful of, of what you buy into. I think these days as well, because we're surrounded by you know information and, and consumerism, and um, it's so easily to sort of get hooked into some of these these things. Um, but for your personal you know experience um, with with the Tibetan Buddhist path. Um, what is that like? Because, you know, it's one thing for you know, someone to write a book, but what gives you the right, I guess, to, to write the book and actually, you know, um, pass these, these messages or doctrines or wisdoms on to others? Oh, well, that, that's a great question. I mean, you know, uh, what gives me the right, huh? <laughs> so we're just forgetting it. We're getting kicked off that way, are we? So, um, <laughs> It's it's a great it's a good point and maybe that's a healthy level of skepticism that anybody should be starting out with. So I I think that's a, I think that's very healthy. Like 
an attitude of not just sort of uh, neither being too open-eyed or glossy-eyed or starry-eyed and just devouring anything willy-nilly, nor being, let's say, too skeptical and closed-minded that, that you can never really uh, embrace or, or encounter something fresh or new. So I think uh, what gives me the right, well, I'm, you know, I, I in, in, in the Buddhist tradition, what gives you the right is certainly your teacher tells you to teach or that your teacher uh, asks you to teach. And then, uh, and, and, and you are a representative of, a, of what's called a lineage. So nobody just fires on out of nowhere. Everybody uh, goes through a long period of training and usually has either one or series of master teachers. And uh, at some point, your you, your teacher acknowledges that you are ready to deliver some some of the teachings. Maybe you start very humbly, um, but and then also there is an audience that us uh, requests that you teach. And one 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 thing that people should know about Tibetan Buddhism has never been a missionary style. Uh, uh, philosophy where where you, you know people are knocking on doors trying to indoctrinate uh, people. It, it, it yeah. you know people don't, people don't know this, but which the, I like that about it actually. It, it is there's a there's a tradition of being asked not just once but being asked three times to teach. So you know if someone you know for example the Dalai Lama goes around teaching, well you know he comes by request. So you request the Dalai Lama to come to your neighborhood to give a teaching, uh, and you don't just request once because he will refuse the first few times. So that's, that's a tradition to make sure yeah, to, safe, to safeguard against, uh, that your motivation is there and that your sincerity is there and that you really do want to learn what, what a teacher has to give. So I would say, uh, I mean, I've been around this, tra- this tradition now for 20 years and I, I gave it my full all. I, I went right to the source and I studied with some of the greatest teachers of the last, uh, of the last, a uh, few decades, and what had uh, you know, extremely uh, blessed opportunity to have um, to see human beings who have uh, changed and for the better. I mean, uh, that's the thing is that um, what inspires people is not what they're saying, but how they live. I think, and so uh, that has been my experience. Uh, being around some great teachers and great masters who n- not only have wonderful things to say, but actually have a kind of way of living that has been the the ch- chief selling point. And mm. so um, after being asked uh, by my teacher to teach not just a one-off, but actually teach a four-year program uh, in 2000. 12, I believe we started, he asked me to teach the the duration of what would be a university-style college program for four years and to educate people in a systematic, comprehensive way where, uh, just like Westerners go to university and start with 101-level courses and you work your way up to sort of a master's okay. thesis. Yeah. Uh, I, I was asked to do that and did so for four years, and we covered about 49 classes and eight weekend retreats and made it to the final course. And then I led people to a pilgrimage to the source, right to India for uh, t- two weeks. And so that was that was a very transformative period. Oh, right. Hmm. It was unbelievable. I mean, I think is that with know, the same group of um, students. It was. It was a it was a group of very committed people who were in New York City that would come weekly to classes and follow a curriculum that would lead semester by semester through the material, uh, that came out of Tibet and, but was synthesized in a way, uh, where the lens through which the information was delivered was a contemporary neuroscience and psychology, uh, language. Uh, so I think that was really the, that was really the acknowledgement of, of my teacher, Joe Luizzo to, to offer that 
that program. And, and for me, it was so transformational that it, it really set the, set the wheels in motion for me to write the book, Gradual Awakening. Yeah, perfect. So lots of obviously personal experience, 20 years, um, you know, studying and experiencing it and then actually having that, that experience teaching it as well. Um, certainly gives you plenty of right to, to talk about this topic. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey into, um, into Buddhism and, and maybe you can clarify what is the, you know, Tibetan Buddhism compared to other forms of Buddhism studies. Sure. I mean, I'm not sure if you're familiar. I'm, I'm sure you are with Joseph Campbell. Have you heard of Joseph Campbell? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Joseph Campbell wrote uh, extensively on what he ended up calling a hero's journey, which is a an archetype or monomyth uh, that that basically serves as a narrative for all traditions of all epochs. Uh, so whether you're le- reading a Greek myth or you're reading uh, uh, something from the Buddhist literature, <clears throat> or you're even watching modern day myths like Star Wars or The Matrix, there is a, an underlying sort of uh, narrative that underpins the human odyssey uh, uh, from ordinary the ordinary existential predicament to uh, a full awakening. And so my my own start starts probably like many others, which was uh, there was alcohol in my family system growing up in Asia and uh, not the most functional uh, uh, family life. And I turned inwards with not very many outlets and uh, was I had a lot of uh, self recrimination and. I uh, was cutting myself and burning myself and, and very isolated and had some depression. And so, so it was, if it were not for a few people in my high school teachers who uh, had what they call breadcrumbs on the hero's journey, which, you know, one of the first books I was given at 16 years old was called, um, uh, oh, now I'm blanking on the name, uh, Siddhartha by uh, oh, Herman yeah. Hesse. I love that book. Hmm. Which is a classic hero's journey and and also was given um some some readings and some videos on uh Joseph Campbell being interviewed by Bill Moyers. And so there was the first inkling that there could be another way to live on this planet, another way to live life that was at the sort age of, of 16. At the age of 16, yes. Yeah, and so that, so that happened early. And if, if not, I don't know if I'd be here, to be honest with you, Lee. Like Did you if, grow, up in, in, grow up in Hong Kong? I grew up in Hong Kong. I went to an American school in Hong Kong. My father was British. My mother was from Turkey. I, I lived a very multicultural and very okay. satisfying, from a material point of view, a very satisfying, materially comfortable uh, 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 upbringing. I, we, we, we had, we had want for nothing. We had beautiful trips and we had uh, a lot of, um, opportunities and I'm very thankful for all of them, but there was just no spiritual inclination in the family hmm. and there was no, there was no religion and yeah. just many like much, probably like many people on the world, there was very secular and, and the chief motivation was fame, status, position, and wealth accumulation. That, that was the modus operandi of the world that I grew up in. And, and from a very early start, I can tell you that was not going to cut it for me. And if it weren't for these certain teachers that, that were offering a template to an alternative way of life that wasn't about external values and external accumulations, but was about an internal world, I might not be here. And so that early seed when I was 16 led eventually to when I was 20 going to India and there I was, uh, part of a program that, uh, 
took students into an immersion into Buddhist culture at the site of the Buddha's enlightenment in a, in a village called Budgaya, and which is to the Buddhists the equivalent of Mecca for the Muslim, uh, and is the central place where the, as I call it, ground zero for the awakening movement, because, of course, the Buddha was the first person to wake up, you know, and mm. and but I don't see Buddhism as a religion as such, although it is viewed that way from all the cultural, the, the, the religious cultural uh, countries that adopted Buddhism from China to Thailand to Burma to Tibet. But from, but from another point of view, it is simply the ground zero of an awakening movement that is um, part and parcel what we are here as human beings to discover about ourselves without all the religious trappings. And so that was a very key moment for me at 20 years old to find my way to a village. At the time, there was no Internet, and I, I, I couldn't even find Bodhgaya on a map in the atlas. But I wound up living with monks there and finding a teacher, and the teacher hmm. taught me about some very practical meditative instructions, but also had a kind of presence. And I, I, w- I would say that it was his presence more that made an impact on me because he was truly unconditional in his love. And that that was very significant for me because I don't think I had up until that point experienced such a thing, even for my family. And so that made a huge impression uh, because what I had found there was an alternative way to live life, an alternative purpose, but also the felt sense of being safe and being held and being cared for, which was so crucial at a time where I was uh, tipping on the edge of a vast uh, existential depression. Mm. <clears throat> Fascinating. How do you... Um like how did you approach that going there and and searching for a teacher and just sort of finding finding that place where you could have that that attention uh, support care and and guidance i suppose like how do you how does one manage to do that well, I guess the, the key word is courage. I, I mean, looking back, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back at, at being, you know, when, when you're 20 in the United States and you're, you're in a college course, they have this thing called junior year abroad where most people end up going to like Florence and studying architecture or you go to, maybe you go to London to study economics or something like that. But I, I was in a small college and I decided to go to a place I couldn't find on the map to live with monks. So, so something was deeply, deeply driving me. And, yeah, and absolutely. I, and, and, and it took a lot of courage because it was very much stepping into the unknown. There was nothing equivalent to it. And, and to be honest, it was, a, it, was, uh, it was very, very challenging living there. I mean, I, ha- I had a tremendous culture shock. Um, I was away from family, away from friends, away from my girlfriend. I was deeply alone at, at, at times. Um, but there was something very um, clear about my drive. There was something pushing me. Again, that's the that's the, the nascent hero in each of us, that even though you may be in a comfortable place, there is something calling you that you cannot or you can try to resist, but eventually you give in. And, and, and I, I, at 20 years old, I gave into it fully. I fully I fully allowed myself to be led by that inner conviction. Which is just bloody awesome. Um, I think it's great. And I, I certainly am curious of how those sort of certain motivations come about. I mean, obviously, you know, you had that underlying sort of depression or, or sort of boiling um, inner turmoil going on there. You've obviously had some sort of touch with, you know, the teachings from 16 and obviously that perhaps put an underlying motivation as well. But then to take the courage to go out there and do something totally off the mainstream sort of track um, is is quite phenomenal. I mean, most people at that age would, 
um, seek, you know, goals or materialistic sort of possessions or um, maybe resort to drug or alcohol abuse or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I, and, you know, my father was an alcoholic and, uh, and we had plenty of those uh, material comforts. So, I, I mean, I guess at 16, 17 and 18, I had already le- reached my limit that may take most people up until their thirties or forties to, to finally, um, in a midlife crisis, discover that none of these things really satisfy. And I think that that is part and parcel what is happening right now in our materialistic culture hmm. is that pe- people with means and people on the secular path and people who have fallen prey to the siren songs of modernity have discovered that it is deeply superficial and existentially anorexic. It does not feed some inherent part of their humanity. And we are finding the ceiling effect of what uh, what constitutes a good life in the material world. Um, and I was just very fortunate, although it wasn't fortunate at the time because I was deeply in crisis, but it happened very early for me. Yeah. And so I guess I guess what I'm saying is it, it is it maybe it's unique in the sense that it happened early, but I don't think it's unique to our predicament as human beings. <clears throat> no, certainly not. I mean, there's a level of, of um, a deeper curiosity about, you know, what is the sort of underlying purpose of life? And, and perhaps you saw through a lot of the trappings that many people get trapped in, including your father being, you know, drawn into alcohol. Um, and, and perhaps that's, that was, you know, what raised your curiosity at such an early age. I, I sort of um, feel myself late 20s is when I started to really sort of ask the bigger questions and go, hang on. What is this chase all about? Why am I, you know, constantly um, moving towards something that's bringing me no greater gain? And that's when I started looking at, you know, those sort of questions. But yeah, I guess it comes to um, people at, at different spots in their lives. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think this is what Joseph Campbell called called an, uh, answering the call. And uh, I don't think there's just one call. I think the call keeps coming until we listen. Um, I think some people don't have the courage or the resources or the internal fortitude to to pick up the phone the first time. But eventually, uh, eventually, whether it be a car accident or a, a loss of income or a loss of a job or a loss of a relationship, we all hit an impasse where we are, are have a collision with reality, I would call it. And that that becomes a crossroad. Either we continue down the road uh uh, automatically on autopilot and recapitulate the whole thing that is build up success, build up wealth all, all, all over again, only to lose it again. Or we ask ourselves those critical questions. And so, you know, you, you've just expressed that that happened to you very early too. So I, I don't, I think this is a common motif of about being a human being. Wow. I like it. So that, that, you know, answering the call, um, I mean, you said it I think well then as far as you know if if we're listening perhaps we can hear that that call um do you think do you would you suggest that this call is within us all there is some sort of motivation in perhaps that a lot of us are, are tuning into I I do I mean I look I personally look at the world and this may you know I don't mean to um you know, many people won't like this, but I, I see ourselves as souls. I see ourselves as spirit. I see ourselves as spirit inhabiting a, a material form. And as we make our way through life, we are drowned out by the noise of a material plane. And we lost, we lose sight of who we really are and we lose sight of our true purpose. And, and instead, we are bombarded by messaging. And this couldn't be more amplified nowadays with technology and social media and all, mm. all the rest of it. That gives us a message that we're here for a really superficial purpose. And I think there is a growing apathy around the planet right now, especially amongst youth. 
Uh, I think when you have the austerity measures in, let's say, in Europe, for example, where nations like Greece and Portugal, where there's a complete tanking of the economy and a whole generation of people that are left out of the so-called advancement game, the economic game, suddenly you have a whole uh, segment of the population asking the question, what is what is the purpose of life and 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 the secular world has not provided them an alternative message about why they're here and so you get deeply deeply growing unrest yeah uh, because you feel that you that, that people have been disenfranchised but they also have been reduced to consumers and producers and if you get kicked out of the game because you're too old or you haven't been to the right school or you don't have enough money you're you're off the you're off the poker table and you're shit out of luck and I think that that breeds a kind of ang- anger and ferocity, um, but it also serves as an incredible crossroads and opportunity for people to reclaim their soul perspective or their deep uh, humanity, their deep uh, inclination about what it is that the human being is really capable of and what it is that uh, really um, uh, defines the human journey. It is not accumulating wealth or achieving some CEO status. It is about awakening, waking up. Um, yeah. So that that is that is really what we're talking about in the book. Yeah, well, I've got so many questions there and so many thoughts going on at the moment about it all. <laughs> um, but it is true. I mean, like those. I mean, you sort of we sort of talked about it on the individual level. Like some people go through that midlife crisis, or um, you know, you lose everything, or you have some deeper tragedy. Um, in your life, and that sort of makes you stop and pause, and then listen, and then that's when you suddenly, you know, ask those questions um, and, and search for those answers because you go, well, hang on, what's this all about? If this is um, this 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 secular way of living can be so easily disrupted, leaving me with with these great um, unsatisfied feelings, I guess. Um, what, what is all that purpose? And on the global level, like whole communities are now experiencing this this level of irrelevance. And I think perhaps that's the reason why now mindfulness, uh, meditation, um, practices of Buddhism are becoming so trendy and popular because people on a, on a collective scale are starting to feel this, hang on, this I, I don't feel relevant. I don't feel like this is available for me in this way of life anymore. Um, more so for those select few that are fortunate enough to tap into it, but not for everyone, perhaps. Is that sort of, you know, would you agree with some of those thoughts? I I would. I mean, one of the central uh, premise of the book is that we are now in 2018 looking at a global crisis, a convergence of crises in the economic sphere, in the political sphere, and certainly in the ecological or environmental sphere. And if we look very, very closely, we can trace the origins of each of those crises down or distill them down to a what I call a sickness of paradigm in the book. A sickness of paradigm is that after 300 years of the modern, uh, rational, uh, enlightened, post-enlightenment experience of Western Europe, where we, from a Newtonian perspective, uh, saw we we abandoned religion rightfully so but we went we swung the pendulum all the way uh, right or left to to science and logic and we Newtonii Newtonianized the entire world into atomic particles and substrates where we set about the agenda of mastering the environment and we live on a planet of finite resources, but uh, we have an economic paradigm of infinite growth. So we 
We are right now on the cusp of the outlying uh, limits of our paradigm. This we are on. We are our species is on the cusp of extinction, self-imposed extinction because of our paradigm, a deeply rooted fundamental error in the way that we see reality, including ourselves. We are not. We are not uh, atomic particles. We are a vast matrix of interdependence, and there is such a thing as causality, cause and effect. And pardon my French, but we have totally fucked ourselves. I mean, we are putting ourselves. I mean, we are. We, you know, it's like we have a nuclear reactor meltdown in Chernobyl or in in Japan, and on the other side of the planet, we are eating. You know, nuclear tuna in our sushi. So we we cannot escape the consequences of our insanity, in other words. And I, I trace all of that to a, a deeply problematic paradigm of materialism, uh, which is a necessary evolution from blind faith, but it is too strongly adhered to logic. And we have lost spirit. See, we have lost spirit. That's what we threw. That's the baby that we threw out with the bathwater in the age of reason and the enlightenment in Western Europe. Um, But there are a few remaining indigenous cultures that still maintain spirit. If you go down to the Amazon and you find the shamans, for example, or if you go to India and you find the yogis, or you go to Tibet or in the Tibetan settlements in India and in Ladakh and in Bhutan, you find the, the Buddhists and the mystics. These are people on the on the verge of being wiped out by modernity that still hold some sacred perspective that we desperately need as modern people right now to to answer our existential predicament about who we really are. And so the book uh, definitely challenges. On the one hand, it suggests that there is, it's by no coincidence that we find ourselves on the brink of extinction, and yet people are now, there's a global consciousness. It's not just in Western Europe. All over the world, people are understanding that there are roots in, avenues into spirit. And, I mean, I don't know about you, but in the United States and in, in Europe right now, the uh, the usage of uh, psychotropic medications and plant medicines called ayahuasca, et cetera, mm. are these, these, the, it is just exponentially blown up. And this is maybe after 25 years of the yoga and the meditation boom, we are now seeing the plant medicine boom. But all of them represent a challenge to the basic premise or the basic sickness, what I call a a sickness of paradigm of modernity and materialism and nihilism. Um, So my my book sets the stage that way by acknowledging the great cataclysm and the great crisis, uh, ecological and uh, environmental, uh, 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 economic and geopolitical. But it also is alerting people to the fact that within sub pockets, there are these uh, opportunities for uh, avenues, portals, I would call them, back into spirit. Now, for 30 years, we've been researching mindfulness, okay, and, and more, I mean, mindfulness is now a household world, it, word. It has made it all the way to Google. It has made it all the way to the World Economic Forum at Davos. It is very, very trendy and popular. It has a good body of uh, clinical research to support its health benefits. So we have come a long way in the mindfulness revolution now. Um, um, but my critique of that is that in contrast to how mindfulness is positioned in the Buddhist tradition, mindfulness has been reduced to a mere technology or technique, and it has been separated or extracted like a mineral from its core 
Um, and in that core lies some of the essential teachings that we're going to need to reverse our paradigm. So that is my critique in the book. The uh, we mindfulness is not far-reaching enough to serve as an antidote for the sickness of paradigm. And what we're going to need is we're going to need a bridge that uh, opens the door with mindfulness, but goes much deeper into some of the wisdom traditions. And there we will uh, we will have access to some of the things that could really really reverse the tra- the trajectory that we're on. Okay, so you believe that there's obviously opportunity here to reconnect to the spiritual path or or spiritual world, and and certainly mend uh, some of the the errors in in our past ways. Exactly, and I and I'm not uh, I'm not championing Buddhism as the only one. I, my, my book is on Buddhism, but I'm 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 basically saying Buddhism is just one path. There are many paths, yeah. uh, and I would say all of wis- sacred wisdom cultures, indigenous wisdom cultures, uh, do hold a very important key. And this is this is true of the Amazon, just the plant medicines in the Amazon. There may be cures for cancer there, and if we wipe out the forest and we wipe out the languages and we invi- and we wipe out the indigenous cultures. We we will uh, we will cut our our uh, cut off a source or supply of life affirming and life giving substances and knowledges to our own detriment, and so I'm not championing the Buddhist cause. I'm saying let's 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 hold on here. The, we are at the outliers of the extremes of our modern way of living, and we're on the brink of extinction. Can is is can we embrace and listen? To indigenous cultures, I mean, in your own country, there, uh, Lee, you have the Aboriginal cultures that have a deep, deep, many thousands of years old tradition there that I think holds some very vital knowledge that could be extremely useful to modern people. Hmm. Yeah. Um, certainly, I mean, there's a lot of questions I have here with with the tipping point of the current dilemma that perhaps we face uh, as a global population. Do you see the, a tipping point coming, like in the next you know, five years, or do you think it's it's already here? <clears throat> I think it's already here. I'm not um, <clears throat> I'm not uh, very um, steeped in the climate science, but what I have done is uh, after spending 20 years under a rock of Tibetan Buddhism, going as deep into one hole as I could, I I also found the limits of the Tibetan path. I found the limits of the spiritual path, which is you can do a lot of inner transformation, but if we don't now recreate social systems that are more egalitarian and more harmonious and more um, sensitive to the plight of millions of people, if we don't recreate uh, new uh, renewable resources and energies and agricultural systems and new economic systems like the ones that are coming emerging from uh, the blockchain and uh, the uh, uh, cryptocurrencies that circumvent the uh, the central banking systems, for example, if we don't come up with new social institutions and new systems. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it's not going to matter uh, how deep our spiritual practice is. And so, hmm. what I'm doing now is I am finding networks now where I can uh, bring my uh, my considerations and my experience in the spiritual world to people who have spent 20, 30, or 40 years working on new economic paradigms and working on new social justice issues or new, working on new agricultural solutions so that collectively, I mean, I think this is what I call the uh, age of integration. We are at a very, uh, we're in a dire situation crisis-wise, but we are also in an unbelievably fortunate situation to have 
to create uh, networks of people where uh, interdisciplinary dialogue can can lead to a much clearer, broader picture of our situation. And we can have people that are working on various disciplines and have expertise working together collaboratively. So that mm. I am I am very interested now after spending so long in just the spiritual world to sit and discuss with people who are in uh, alternative resources, energies, for example. Yeah. How do we work together? I think that is where that that is going to be the key forward that we collective make a collective. Collaborative. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you look at you know capitalism, consumerism, um, materialism, it seems all very much about the individual or an individual pursuit. Um, and that certainly separates us from that that collaborative process, and um, perhaps you know is, is a great part of the reason why we've separated ourselves from you know the spiritual world or spiritual practices because they were considered less valuable in in taking us towards you know what would ultimately lift the status of the individual up. I agree totally. So coming back together, I mean, is. Um, and, and I and I would just say there's a there's a paradigm within Buddhism called middle way philosophy, which what it does is it attempts to avoid the extremes. And I think it's a very helpful meme uh, for any of us thinking about solutions because I think if you, I think there is a, a tendency to, um, and certainly you see this in the United States in the political do- domain where you see a pendulum, a vast pendulum swing swing from one side to the other. Uh, so, for example, when you have uh, you have several several centuries of religion, and then you have the pendulum swing all the way to science. Okay, now we're seeing after 300 years the uh, the the incredible degradation to the environment that science has caused, or the modern the modern materialistic paradigm that underpins it has caused, and then there is a tendency to swing all the way back. And what I'm saying is slow down. Why don't we sit down calmly and take a look at the best that both extremes offer and integrate them and try to avoid the um, the byproducts or the negative consequences that each of them have? And that way we'll avoid going back and forth in some silly, naive failure to uh, make sense of our history. Hmm. Uh, and, yep. and so that's the, that's really what the opportunity is at the current uh, – so like, for example – Capitalism has reached its uh, extreme, right? We have this brand of capitalism called neoliberal capitalism that where the uh, all bets are off on the checks and balances, which is why you can have maybe 40 people on the planet uh, enough to fill a Greyhound bus own more than half the wealth on the planet. That, now that, that represents an exaggeration that has never happened in human history. Okay, but we can't go from that extreme all the way back to religion because we've already seen after centuries of crusades and 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 pedophilia and what, whatever we've seen the the limits of a religious uh, mm. uh, 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 institution of governments. So what we what we really need is to have clarity to find a middle way. And so the book, in my sense, is is Tibet was one of these fantastic cultures that both retained a very critical science and had faith together. They didn't see them as uh, polar opposites. They saw them as a unitary whole. And that's why the Dalai Lama can go around being both a spiritual figure, but also a political figure. Uh, and, and also trans-Buddhist. I mean, he's into human ethics, and uh, his teachings are about compassion. Uh, and everybody loves the Dalai Lama. He's a cute-as-hell kind of guy. He's giggly and cuddly and cute. <laughs> but no no one no one realizes that on the Dalai Lama's, uh, on the day that he escaped Tibet, he escaped Tibet uh, in, as, a, as a result of consulting the oracle of Tibet. 
so while people really like the Dalai Lama and his critical mindedness and his uh, his receptivity to science, Tibet also in its part in 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 its delegation of uh, of leadership have an oracle. I mean that is far out, you know. But that's what saved the Dalai Lama, and that's that's indication of a middle way, you know, between these two opposites. Yeah, it's, it's it's about working together to find that middle way. I sort of feel um, that we're still very much focused on on the individual self um, when it comes to this this sort of trend. Like we're we're pushing forward, we're finding this irrelevance, and and the move towards you know spirituality in our own lives is very much more um, self focused in trying to bring about a sense of happiness that isn't only provided through the material possessions that we might um, you know encounter in our lives um, rather than a journey to collectively collaborate and find solutions to some of the the greater um, collective issues that, that we're facing. Um, I agree with you, Lee. I agree with you. So that that is like a less popular view. It, it may be a little bit of a criticism on our culture. You see, it's not that sexy, but I actually agree with you that most of the motivation in the spiritual world is self-interested, and and there's too much talk really of getting happy, uh, uh, and I and I see that as problematic. I agree, I would agree with you. Uh, well, I love the I, idea of getting happy. <laughs> Certainly, you know. Um, but right, I think but the I problem think is that we then package. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. We, well, we package mindfulness up into a pill, and we expect that we can, you know, do this quick course online, or I don't know, sit in our room and whatever it might be, download the Headspace app, and suddenly we're a spiritual, and you know, um, I don't know, it, it sort of brings around a false sense of self satisfaction. Um, uh, but again, I think we'll find ourselves, you know, back at a, at a, a spot where we're bothered and feeling irrelevant and, and unsatisfied or discontent with, with everything. I agree. And maybe we need to rebrand or at least look at the word happiness, what we're actually meaning, because the, my, my sense is that the happiness that people are after, whether they're on the corporate treadmill or they find something like mindfulness or they find the latest app for this or that in the spiritual domain, what they're looking for is a kind of very temporary fleeting happiness. And that, that's not the kind of happiness that is, uh, uh, the aspiration in the wisdom cultures are not for that kind of hedonic pleasure driven happiness. That yeah. it is much more about a, we would call it more like purpose or understanding or altruism or well-being, internal well-being, a kind of sense of, uh, being connected and on being driven by purpose and meaning that can withstand the ups and downs of pain and pleasure, uh, which we can never really transcend in the human realm. I mean, we're never going to get uh, past ups and downs and highs and lows. That's just the world that we live in. Yeah. Uh, but there, but there can be some inner contentment, inner peace, and inner. Uh, motivation, let's say that that can um, create a sense of inner contentment and purpose in everyday life. That I think is really what these traditions are talking about. Yeah, certainly like that. That's a it's a great way to sort of, I suppose, define you know what what that happiness is all about. So talk to us a little bit about um, you know your book and and the the, the gradual awakening process because um, I know you've got a term called McMindfulness, which is I suppose. Uh, a lot about what we've just talked about um, as far as the trendiness of, of mindfulness goes. Um, talk to us about your book. What, what is the, the the guiding sort of path here for people to take away? 
Okay, so I mean, in 2010, I came up with this term of mindfulness as my critique against what I was seeing as a complete explosion and marketing-driven propaganda about what the uh, kind of mindfulness as a panacea. I mean, at the time, I was witnessing every third book seemed to come out like mindfulness for this and mindfulness for that, and just about anybody was doing mindfulness and selling mindfulness. And in a way, you can't blame them. It's part of the cultural zeitgeist, and and maybe it was all you know, it was all leading us somewhere, which is great. You know, open the doors for millions of people to recognize the importance of their awareness. Right under their nose is this valuable tool called awareness which can be used to calm down and to resist the temptations of habits that are making us crazy and sick. And the literature is there to support that. So hooray for mindfulness. However, uh, from a Buddhist point of view, mindfulness is just one third of the entire uh, uh, legacy of, of spiritual uh, curriculum, for example. It's not just, it's like a, a bar stool has three legs and, and mindfulness is just one of them. And that's the one that became popular in our culture. And the other two are end up being, in my estimation, the most critical. Uh, all three of them are critical to reversing the paradigm, the sickness of paradigm, but which is my, you know, which we, which we discussed in the beginning of our talk here. Uh, you need all three of them to reverse the sickness of paradigm if we're going to bring ourselves from the uh, right. brink of extinction. You know, so the 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 people that I want to reach with this book are the people that have already spent five or 10 years doing mindfulness and are already, or yoga for that matter, because the yoga tradition also comes, the wisdom tradition of yoga also has more than one leg. But in our culture, in Western culture, the postures are, are what became really glamorous and hyped up and exaggerated, uh, which is nothing more in our culture than fancy calisthenics on hundred dollar yoga mats. Um, but <clears throat> And so there's that same kind of mindfulness fad in the yoga world. I call it the yoga boom, okay? And and what I'm suggesting is after you've done five years of that, you've been around the block, you've done your yoga practice, you've done your mindfulness, you see the benefits, but you reach a kind of ceiling, eventually you will have a curiosity that will bring you back to the core teachings uh, before they were extracted by secular secular our secular society, and there you will have an opportunity to come face to face with the original wisdom traditions from which these practices or, or originate. And there you will find a, a vast curriculum that contains all the comprehensive teachings and uh, and practices and uh, worldviews that can be a corrective for our uh, sickness. And so what I do in this book is provide a roadmap into into the curriculum, which has survived was, you know, in Tibet for over a thousand years before the Chinese invasion, and then May was made available to, you know, by way of India. The Tibetan wisdom tradition was made available to the world by way of uh, the Indians receiving the Tibetans in exile, and that 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 uh, curriculum, that curriculum of awakening, if you will, that used to be available in the monasteries, are now being disseminated throughout the planet. And what I try to do is because. We have a cultural aversion to religious matters uh, as a result of our exposure to religion in our own cultures. We are a little bit averse, phobic, I would say. Yeah. And so when you get to that point where you recognize the importance of meditation, but you also see that it's not enough, not far-reaching enough, like, okay, what, what next? I've already been on a retreat. I've read a couple of good books. I'm sold that it's useful or beneficial, but I'm still, not, I'm still existentially hungry. 
when you get to that crossroads and there you find the wisdom cultures, whether they be the Aboriginal or the indigenous shamans or the Tibetans or the mystics of whatever culture, then you will have to face a whole new set of implicit um, hang-ups from your own legacy, from your own cultural uh, traumas, for example. You know, we've been traumatized by religion, and so we're suspicious. Hmm. And so what I try to do, once you get to that crossroad, you've recognized the importance, you've come right up to meeting and shaking hands with a mystic or the tradition, the, the, the shamans or the wisdom keepers of a tradition, but your, your nervous system is saying, hang on. I can't do it. I mean, I just can't do the religious thing. Then I introduce this bridge of science. And I say, if we play a game of language, if I can convey from the tradition, the wisdom from the tradition, but I convey it to you in a way where it makes sense to you in modern terms, will it then be more accessible to you? That's, Mm. That's my question. Can we use science to help as a bridge back to sacred wisdom? Yeah, well, I, so I think that's, that's what science is doing now, isn't it? Really, it's it's encouraging people to be more open to some of these uh, religious traditions. Yes, and I think that's what happened with the yoga and the mindfulness movement. Is once you start to say, okay, we've we've uh, monitored this person's brain, and there's definite a uh, positive impact. Then people go, oh, well, it's not woo-woo. Meditation has something to it. So science gives a kind of credibility to a secular audience that makes them less suspicious and more open-minded. Yeah, but yeah. We, can, we can go even further. We can take that, we can take that, very, um, we can take that very same uh, situation and extend it. We can go even further. So that's what, that's what I'm trying to do in this book is we've already used science to re-embrace meditation – can we use science to re-embrace things like prayer? Can we use science to uh, re-embrace things like uh, making offerings on an altar? How about um, how about gurus? How about uh, how mm. about uh, archetypes in visualizations? Uh, so these things they kick up all kinds of crazy feelings for people in the West. Uh, that iconography that that can be really noxious to some people. But what if we had Good science to to show and to teach people how to how to think about them. How how are they working? What are the mechanisms? And suddenly that that disarms people because now it's not uh, metaphysics, speculative metaphysics. Now there's something to it. Yeah, I like it. So just going to the the three other the two other elements you talk about mindfulness. What are the other two that you were referring to? Right. So that's great. Thank you so much. I mean. We would call we'd call these three disciplines. Let's say these three legs of the bar stool. One is awareness training. Okay, so we have mindfulness, but that's just one technique. There are hundreds of techniques. So the word meditation is like a catch-all phrase, like sports, which encapsulates a vi- wide variety of conscious shaping practices. Mindfulness being just one of them, but all of them put together constitute or one branch or one discipline or one leg of the stool. The other two. One is called wisdom and one is called virtue, okay? Wisdom has to do with worldview, correcting our erroneous worldview, and virtue has to do with recommendations for how to live once you have realigned your worldview. So, for example, right now we live mostly in a Newtonian paradigm, a worldview that suggests that the table that's in front of me is hard and concrete, and likewise, myself is hard and concrete. It's intractable. Like we used to think that the brain was, you know, once after a first certain period of development, it was hardwired or fixed. 
so we, we have this kind of perspective that things exist in and of themselves as objects, as discrete objects in the world. And our paradigm, that's our paradigm. And the way that we live in that paradigm is through exploitation and mastery. We try to control things. Hmm. Okay, and, that, and that's why we've destroyed the planet, because we've tried to master uh, the elements and we've tried to master uh, uh, human, even down to human population. So that's what a corporation does, for example. It's, it's based on the premise of exploiting resources. And, and so our lifestyle is congruent or commensurate or, uh, re- or relates to our worldview. And from the Buddhist perspective, they say if you want to uh, correct your worldview, you have to practice adopting a different kind of worldview. And if you want to correct your lifestyle, you have to practice not just meditation, but you have to practice a different way of being that's in accord with that worldview. And so mm. what is that worldview? I call that worldview quantum view. And it, quantum view is – I'm not a quantum physicist and I don't pretend to be. I'm just being <laughs> cheeky. But, but I, think, I think just from a, just a very naive way of looking at quantum view as opposed to Newtonian view, Newtonian view is suggesting that at the, at the building block of everything is a kind of atom, whereas quantum, quantum view suggests that that atom is not a fixed independent entity. Actually, you can go into the atom and what you find there is a whole other world that's more like wave or particles or probabilities. Okay, and so that, that suggests that what we are seeing in the world is deceiving us because everything appears to our mind as a discrete entity, but what it actually is is more like a wave matrix where we are interacting, even ourselves. We're not like a building block of an atom and, everyone, and like billiard balls bouncing off of each other. We're more fluid than that. But our brain is set up to read the environment in a certain way, and so we're being deceived. And so we have to actually train ourselves to see that there are more probabilities and we are more interconnected and we are more fluid than our brain reads us in any given situation. And that's not just the phenomenal world. That's also ourself. Hmm. So if you're out there listening right now and you think that you're worthless, for example, that's your atomic building block sense of self. You think that you're inherently a worthless piece of shit. Yeah. Uh, so, so then you're stuck. If you're st- if you're still in the Newtonian world, you're stuck with that. But if you break through the quantum world, you see that the self and objects and phenomenon and interactions are far more fluid. Then you have more possibilities. Yeah. So then, how do you how do you access those possibilities? Well, through intention and action, you can intervene in possibilities. But we've forgotten this. We don't think we we think that we can do everything. We can we can live without consequence. Isn't that how modern people live? I mean, that's how we can just destroy the planet because we don't see any cause and effect relationship uh, between our mm. intentions, actions, and and their consequence. But in the Buddhist worldview, you have all these infinite probabilities. But your intention and your actions count. They come back to shape how you how you feel. Uh, so if you're violent all the time, you create more paranoia, for example. But if you're generous, you create more uh, sense of abundance, subjective sense of abundance. Now, that, that word is called karma in the Buddhist tradition, but we can just call it causality. Hmm. So the worldview is about probabilities and possibilities and openness. Yeah. And the virtue, the leg, the discipline of virtue is about if the world is open and everything does matter, then how would you want to live with each other on the planet? You, wanted, you would want to be guided by much more tenderness and much more truth and much more honesty and much more um, solidarity 
than consumer capitalism and competition and drive instincts for greed and aggression would predict. Hmm. So that's we need that. We need and that's 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 trans religious. That's got nothing to do with one religion over the other. And this is what I think people that are suspicious of religion go, well, don't talk to me about ethics. Don't don't tell me how to live my life. In, in, a, in a secular free society, we don't talk about ethics. And I think that's a big mistake. Uh, because, but you can see how, how worldview and, and, and lifestyle have been disconnected. But that has never been disconnected in the Buddhist, in the Buddhist tradition. You meditate. You, you practice seeing the nature of reality. In other words, you become a scientist to reality to understand this quantum level of possibilities. And you try to live harmoniously with people. And, and that becomes your full package, what I call the full Monty. Yeah, well, I love it. It makes a lot of sense. And, and I assume, you know, reading the book, you'll get a lot more clarity around that. I know that's the sort of process you go through, isn't it? Um, that journey, basically, to run people through those ideas, but also the practices that can help you along the way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I try to distill the, the theories and the practices into 30 steps. And you might you might say, oh, well, you know, people can only handle three these days. And I say, well, that that's only because we're conditioned by consumerism to like go for clickbait. You know, like life is more complicated than three steps. So, you know, I, I try to give I try to give it you know, even if it irritates people or they have to do a little bit of harder work. It's your life. You yeah. know, yeah. it's life. You know, if you want to improve your life, you might have to take on a little, you might have to actually uh, spend a little more time with it and you might have to reorganize your priorities for it. And you might have to like do it a few times and go through the, go through a process. So, so I'm anti, um, let's make it easy, quick fix. Yeah. Yeah. Spend the time on it. Um, give exactly. it the attention it needs. I love it. Mate. And I'm conscious of the time. I really want to, I know there's so much more um, that we could delve into here, but um, I suppose that's good uh, reason to go out there and pick up the book. So guys listening out there, if this sounds of interest, definitely um, uh, pick up a copy and have a read. I've got a copy here, I believe, uh, Miles as well. So I'm looking forward to reading it myself. Um, I'll stick the link in the show notes uh, for this book. I suppose the question that I have uh, before I just jump into some quick round questions, Miles, is where, where to from here? Like, uh, you know, in this day and age where we all seem so busy, caught up with general day to day activities, what does this practice entail? Like, is it, is it possible for us to incorporate this into our, our daily life? It might not be if you want to just live the ordinary consumeristic um, agenda. I don't think it's this is not going to. I was like, listen, I'm a therapist. People come to me all the time. They want to learn meditation. They want it in one session. They want to have a three-step process they can put in their pocket and then go back to their life. And I don't do that. Yeah, I don't yeah. do that. I suggest, I say, I just say to people, if, if you're not willing to make an overhaul, a complete overhaul in your priorities where you actually might have to let go of some of the things that are killing you and cultivate a, a new a new way of doing uh, doing life – I'm not. I'm not up to giving you um, a practice that you're going to put back into your uh, neglectful or or, or uh, erroneous worldview. I'm not interested in that. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm definitely a critic of culture and the people that come to see me and the people that I I, I, I study and practice with. Uh, we we are we are not about the quick fix thing. We're about how do we slow down enough and shuffle up the cards enough so that we could bring in an hour or two of discipline of meditative discipline. But also, we might have to leave certain jobs. We might have to do do more radical things 
to to create the conditions for uh, a, a more a deeper transformation. Yeah. Okay. Well, I suppose that's the uh, that's the conundrum that uh, a lot of people probably experience. Is you know, I've got kids. I've got a um, you know, ten hour day of work, um, and and I absolutely agree. There's so much that we put into our lives that is unnecessary. Um, but just you know, dealing with children and, and work alone can sometimes leave people uh, without. Well, I, that's the what, lately, that's what I'd say is I would just say for people who are in that conundrum, I completely understand. I have two kids too. I have yeah. a roof over my head. Um, I remember what you I saying would say at the start. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what I, what I would say is rather than jumping into a meditation practice, let's take a few days, weeks, or months to think about our life and, yeah. uh, and, and how it's set up and what we think is important and what we're after and, and why we're after it. And let's rather than just jumping on to the meditation bandwagon, why don't we do a very healthy and thorough inventory about the entire way that we're living? and ask ourselves some really hard questions, I think that is worth a lot. I yeah. think that's really, really uh, get off the treadmill and just do an inventory. Like, where does this go five years out, you know? Yeah, it's and been about is, my and, past five years is, is that inventory still asking the questions and still clearing things out. Yeah. yeah. Takes and a I, so I think, that, I think that's what uh, Socrates would call a life worth living. Hmm. Beautiful, mate. Look, I've got some quick round questions. Um, let's see how we go with these. I think some of them we've probably already touched on, to be honest. Uh, the first question I want to ask is, do you have a or any routines or rituals that you believe contribute to your overall success or well-being? <laughs> I mean, you're talking like little plaque practical things. I have a little Just practice. Just something that you do daily that you think is is quite profound. Yeah, I like this little practice, which I'm teaching my boy. See, I'm not teaching my boy meditation. I, I teach my four-year-old boy, Bodhi, a, a little uh, practice that's written. And I wrote, wrote about it in the book because I like it so much. It's called a water bowl offering, which you you have set up an altar and you invite uh, spiritual presence or who, whoever inspires you to join you in that space. And then you offer them something. And so in the Tibetan tradition, they have these beautiful bowls. They're just made of copper, but you imagine... Uh, as you pour water into them, you imagine that you're offering sacred substances and uh, you imagine being generous and offering and inviting uh, your spiritual mentors or guides or presence to receive those gifts. And without sounding so woo-woo, I guess my even from the vantage point of my four-year-old boy, what that is is, is, is uh, creating a neural network in his brain that um, understands the importance of generosity. Uh, and, and that there's always something that you can give and that it's always nicer to give than to receive and that there is more than meets the eye because you're offering it to people or people that might not be there. May they, may they be ancestors or presences and evoking the presence of something that's watching over you so that you feel safe and uh, creating an abundance culture. You know, even if you lived in, if so, if you if you lived in the desert, you'd offer sand, but you would imagine it as sacred substances. So you don't need anything uh, expensive to do that. And if you have water, you can offer water and imagine that it's nectars, or you can imagine that it's jewels or whatever. And your brain doesn't know the difference. See, that's the importance that neuroscience has come up with: is that when you're offering something and transforming it in your imagination, your brain gets the uh, your brain gets the credit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a little practice that I like. And that can be three, four minutes. You see, that's a generosity practice, which is incredibly important in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. I love it. Uh, with young kids and myself, that's a good one. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Oh, don't make me cry, man. Uh, my 20-year-old self, 
he was he was really having a hard time. Uh, I, I would say, don't worry so much; it's going to work out for you. You know, I, yeah. I, I had I had a fate complete. I didn't think I was going to live. You know, there were days where I didn't think I was going to live. I, I didn't think I was going to amount to much. I didn't think I was going to find my way. Uh, I was against myself, and I was falling into a pit of hopelessness and despair. And I, I would say now that, and some of my core beliefs when I was twenty is that people don't really care. And that you're really in it alone, and you're, you're you know no one no one has any integrity, and they're all out to fuck you. Uh, those are the kind of thoughts that dominated me when I was twenty, and I, and my life has shown me that people do care. People do invest an enormous amount of time. There are loving people that will take care of you and support you and make sure you will get to exactly where you need to be. Hmm. Yeah, that's good advice. What? How do you define success? Hmm. Wow, these are these are good ones, Lee. These are good ones. I think success has changed for me over the time over 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 the course of my life. Um, even recently, I'm going through a little bit of a midlife crisis where even the world of that I have created on the basis of my interest in Buddhism, I've developed a successful psychotherapy practice. I've become a teacher. I, I have faculty positions at prestigious colleges, uh, and I do meaningful work with people who are sincere. And I, I, that has lasted 15 years. And to me, that has felt like a success because it has been driven by uh, meaning and purpose and authenticity and care. It is predicated on making a living by uh, offering other human beings the possibility of reconnecting the spirit. Um, <clears throat> But now that's changing for me. I'm crossing a threshold where that whole world is now become a comfort zone and I am transitioning into a new life and I don't know where I'm going to land, to be perfectly honest with you, Lee. So whatever uh, predicament I was in when I was 20, I feel like I have answered it, but uh, but you cannot stay stagnant for long. And now I'm in, in, in my second period of life. I am also uh, transitioning, and with it comes new um, opportunities. So I would—I I don't know what success is going to mean in this second part of my life. It might mean—it uh, might mean uh, how do I raise my kids? You know, like, am I able to impart on them a kinder, gentler uh, uh, way of being? That might be a way that I measure success. If 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 I can become. Um, a role model for my kids and through them see that they're kinder and gentler and take more responsibility, not just for themselves, but for others, then I think that that may be uh, for the second part of my life, uh, an indication of greater success. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. What, um, if I was to serve you your last meal, what would you request? (laughs) Oh man, I really like brownies. (laughs) <laughs> I really like chocolate and I like brownies. That's nice. Maybe a nice a nice cappuccino and a beautiful chocolatey brownie with nuts. Yeah, that would be my last meal. Okay, cool. I got, <laughs> what activity gives you the greatest sense of joy? Uh, recently, it's just playing with the kids, really, uh, to be honest. You know, yeah. I had the, one is one and a half and the other is four. And we were the other day we were playing superheroes. So we grabbed some rags and we made capes. And suddenly we turned the living room into like a, a rescue mission. And uh, we, my wife and I and the kids, we just lose track of time. And we enter into a, a liminal space where we're all superheroes. Uh, and and it's, just, it's just a delight to uh, access the mind of a child with such 
there's such creativity and there's such, um, timelessness and, mm. and it's, it's, uh, it's what, what the Zen master, uh, Suzuki Roshi said, uh, beginner's mind. It is, it is truly, truly, they are my teachers right now. Yeah. Like it. Uh, what book would you pass down to your children? One book, my book, no question about it. <laughs> I would, I, I, I wrote the, in the acknowledgements that one day when Bodhi and Pema uh, come of age and if they ever go through a spiritual crisis as I did at 16, then if I might not be there, that this would be a time capsule for my deepest, sincerest wishes for them to follow a path that leads them back to spirit. And I say that with all sincerity and humility. I like that. Yeah, great. What quote, phrase or message would you text or tweet to everyone in the world? My favorite quote comes from Nagarjuna, a famous uh, middle way philosopher of the Tibet, of the Indian Buddhist system, and his uh, his uh, his stanza in Sanskrit is Shunyata Karuna Garbam, which means emptiness, the womb of compassion. And what that means is the world of possibilities, out of which uh, so the world is open, and love is the most important initiative within that openness. So the world is open. Think about that. We are on the brink of chaos, but it is not fixed. And and because it's open, we have a multiplicity of probabilities and choices. Which one is the best one for all of us to access before it's too late? That is love and compassion. Hmm. Shunyata karuna garbam, emptiness, the womb of compassion. Okay, I like it. We've sort of answered this question at the start. Do you believe we will have a hidden why? or a purpose. And we talked about that with the calling. Yes, we're all on a hero's heroine's journey if you will. We're all we're, we there is a part of us that is here to wake up. And that doesn't mean to become Buddhist, it means to become more fully human. Okay. Yeah, nice. You give me a lot of clarity around that today. And what does living with passion and purpose mean to you? Yeah, but I mean, purpose is really important. As I said, I'm going through this midlife crisis, and if I were just seeking pleasure, I'd be shit out of luck right now. Mm-hmm. But what is more, what is, I would say, purpose is the new happiness. You see, if if you have a purpose, you can go through ups and downs because you are driven. You are driven by a, a, a meaningful uh, goal. And, and my goal is to awaken for the benefit of others and to make some humble contribution to steering our evolution away from the abyss of self-destruction. And so purpose, even while I'm in midlife crisis and I'm going through all kinds of confusions and existential dilemmas, I have, I've never wavered on my purpose. Hmm. And so even if I wake up depressed one day or I wake up with uh, anxieties or fears or doubts or confusions, I'm not confused about my purpose and my role and what I'm trying to accomplish. And, and for that, that has been a saving grace in the midst of the darkness yeah. recently because mm. if I were just holding on to success, if I was just holding on to praise, if I was just holding on to happiness, if I was just holding on to pleasure, I would be shit out of luck. But I'm, I'm, I'm driven by a purpose. And the purpose is not willy-nilly. The purpose is clear. Waking up to make some contribution for this planet before it's too late. And I think... Actually, that's where spirituality and ecology collide. We are all custodians of this planet, and we all have to make a shift in our perspective and make some contribution. One of the things that I've been talking about in this book is we can't wait for a top-down initiative. Every single person listening to this podcast right now has to dig deep and recognize that their contribution to uh, a new world is theirs to claim. They have to make it. 
You can't wait for Obama to do it. You can't wait for the, the G7 to do it. You can't wait for leaders to do it. They're just as limited as anybody else. So who's going to do it? It has to be a grassroots movement of everybody offering some talent, some skill, some contribution to the greater network. Yeah, I like it. Great thoughts. And I suppose that sort of answers on the last question that I have for you is what do you believe is the underlying motivation behind everything you do? Is reclaiming spirit. I mean, we are spirit and we have forgotten. So we're asleep. And the main drive is not the instinctual drives of gratification and defense. The main drive is to reclaim our status as awakened beings. That's and that is not Tibetan. That's not Buddhist. That's that's what it means to be fully human. And when we arrive at that place, we will recognize that the little individual skin bag that we have identified with and and, and tried to gratify is not whom we really are. Hmm. We are we are consciousness, and we are the collective. And and what happens on one side of the planet is like uh, chopping off your foot. And once you see yourself as a as a as an intricate member of the biosphere then you will reclaim all humanity as your own body and your own children. Yeah, well said. Miles, thanks very much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute what, pleasure. What an honor, man. Thank you so much for the work that you do. I really, really appreciate you inviting me. I know we've gone uh, beyond the time, but guys, it's been a pleasure having Miles here. So make sure you reach out to him, connect with him. Miles, I've got the links there, so I'll stick those in the show notes um, for people to connect with you as well. Uh, of course, the copy of your book. So guys, you can pick up a copy of that and have a read as well. I can't wait to delve into it. Uh, Miles, again, thanks uh, thanks for coming on. Be well. Check it all out, guys, thehiddenwhy.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden white this is the hidden white my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon